friends and enemies. It's episode 238 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And you know, in addition to just talking entirely too much about generative AI, because we're being made to, uh, (laughs) we've also been talking a lot uh, more this year about the mechanics of venture capital. And these two things go hand in hand together, right? Like the reason why we are talking about generative AI, just as why we talked so much about Web3 last year, just as why at at the beginning of TMK, when we started our show back in 2020, we were talking a ton about the gig, like the gig economy. We were talking about Uber. We were talking about uh, Deliveroo. We were talking about, you know, uh, go get and, you know, all of that kind of shit, as well as Amazon and the logistics, you know. But like, what I'm saying here is that there's a reason why, like, we keep, you know, the things that captivate all of our attentions, you know, not just us on Team K, but academics and journalists and other commentators who talk about uh, the tech sector and its impacts on society and stuff like we are constantly, we're constantly having to follow the lead of other people who should not be um, setting the pace for what the hype is, what the trends are, what gets attention, and how that gets directly fed into massive overvaluations, massive overinvestments, overhyping, and underdelivering on all of the promises that they have. Folks, it is because, you know, we, we are always chasing after those agents of capital, the VCs, the venture capitalists themselves, who are, you know, uh, really the people setting this, setting the pace and, ma- and doing the planning for innovation in society today in a really outsized way, in a really dominant mode. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, the tech executives and startup founders and these people come in for a lot of well-deserved kicking um, by critics of the tech sector. But it's really, I think, the VCs who are, you know, pulling the strings more than anybody else at this at this point in time in terms of like how innovation actually works, what the processes, uh, how they, you know, how they operate and all of that. And increasingly there's, you know, the, there, there's a bit more attention paid to the role of VCs, but increasingly they are still very like mystified. Like the mechanics of how venture capital works is mystified. The practices of venture capitalism are mystified. The venture capitalists themselves are mystified, right? Like they aren't the, they aren't like household names in the same way as like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, or any or Jeff Bezos or any of these goons are, but I like I think if we're really going to understand the mechanics of 
capitalism today, it necessitates that we understand like how like how venture capitalism actually works, what are its practices, and what are the kind of inherent constraints and limitations, uh, the the parameters and, and goals um, that that venture capitalism overlays on the innovation system. So. We've talked about it a little bit, you know, in various episodes this this year, uh, but let's dig more into it. Uh, and and the the occasion is, I, I I recently came across a really just fantastic one of the clearest, most kind of like synthetic uh, articles on venture capitalism that I've read in a long time. I've been doing a lot more reading in the literature around this for some some other stuff I'm working on. Um, I talked a lot. Of, I just had a paper come out in the journal Big Data and Society about Web3. And in there, I use that as an excuse to talk a lot about how fictitious capital works and, you know, as a kind of underlying mechanic within venture capitalism. Um, but this new paper that, uh, that we're going to dig into for this episode is such a good crystallization of the the kind of a venture capital as a inherently social relation a social dynamic right not some like mystical art of you know uh, of, of of financial engineering or political economy it's all it is all of that stuff but at its base it is just a boys club <laughs> it's social relations it's a it's a small group of oligarchic uh, wealthy elites who decide what gets funding, what counts as innovation, um, and all of that. So the paper that we're going to spend this episode go- going through and discussing uh, is a very, very long law review article by Peter Lee, who's a professor of law at UC Davis. Uh, and the, the paper's called Enhancing the Innovative Capacity of Venture Capital. And it was just recently published in the Yale Journal of Law and Technology, um, but we'll 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 walk through it. We'll walk through and discuss the the paper's arguments, its findings, its analysis, all of that. Um, so you don't have to go through what is a a, a one hundred page article because damn, do law professors love to to be verbose? I'm I'm <laughs> I'm collaborating with some law professors on a on a on a paper right now around insuretech. We're looking and we're like targeting it for. Um, a social science journal. I was like, you know, like we should aim for something like six to seven thousand words um, for the for the article. You know, taking into account, you know, references. We'll kind of bump it up and stuff. And they and and their eyes got wide, and they were like, "That's all? We only get seven thousand <laughs> words? I'm just I'm just clearing my throat You're at seven k. You're warming <laughs> up at seven k." <laughs> I was like, it is possible to be succinct. And it's also insane that 7,000 words is also a 7,000 word academic article as a version of being succinct. <laughs> yeah. No, oh my God. <laughs> they, I, you know, I get it. They got a lot of ideas to get out. How many articles have we read here for the show? Like, um, especially with Omarova's work, but also other things, you know, analyzing shareholder activism or the big three um, shareholders and asset managers as, as well as capital flows that work similarly to venture capital when it's in a law review it's gonna it's gonna be fucking long it's gonna mm. be long as shit I can't think of a single law review article 
that has that has not been like over fifty pages that we've talked about. And I, I guess we can't really complain because I don't know many other podcasts that regularly mine uh, law review articles for content right, <laughs> in the way right. that we do. Um, we are we are literally doing the reading, so you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> because folks, it's like. It's really fascinating stuff. I think some of the most, you know, like Jason was talking about, some of the most fascinating and interesting texts come not really from venture capitalists, although there are some who have pretty interesting thoughts. But for the most part, it's not really worth the pennies it costs to host them digitally. Um, there are a few who have good insights, but the real work, like here is done by people who synthesize like you know wide histories, commentary, do the interviews, do legwork to try to come up with a framework for understanding venture capital that I think critically engages with. I mean, it takes seriously, but it still critically engages with a lot of the narratives around venture capital. And here, you know, some of the core premises that we are kind of thinking of through and and wanting to to push. Or, you know, we, when I say we, I mean the writer, you know, he's concerned with uh, innovation, right? And whether or not venture capital, well, there are two things. One, is venture capital um, a reliable engine of innovation? Um, and two, in what are the limits uh, that prevent it from being a greater engine of innovation? And then with a sub-question or maybe a separate one, is what role can the law play in coding um, in an environment for venture capital to be as uh, as beneficial for the public as possible? And you know what pulled me in almost immediately with this paper is that it kind of attacks or or, or questions and is skeptical of the immediate claim that most of us know suffer or inundated with almost all the time, which is that venture capital is probably one of the only ways we have of discovering um, new ideas, uh, scaling them up with capital, attracting talent, building them up, taking them to a market, optimizing them, making them efficient, and then integrating them into society and other in-tech stacks and blah, 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 blah. Venture capital connects founders and, and entrepreneurs uh, to investors who are looking to maximize their returns and minimize their risk. But as we've talked about, <clears throat> and as this paper goes into great detail about, right, that model places a lot of limits, right? Because there are a lot of things that would be beneficial and highly profitable, but are just way too risky to rationalize in the venture capital mindset. And that a lot of these things are innovations that could be incredibly valuable and incredibly useful socially and have real massive effects on improving livelihoods. Reduce, you know, the immediate example, literally the first example talks about, you know, a technology that might help electrify a grid, reduce emissions, but is of course a risky one because there's still a lot of technology and, and junctures in between that still have to be worked out. Are you, are you storing the energy? Are you transporting the energy? Can we improve how much energy is getting pulled in from these solar panels? Can we improve how much how long the energy gets stored for, so on and so forth? And so a venture capitalist might look at that and say, damn, that, sh that sounds crazy, but I don't want to invest. You know? And instead, in this example, in the first example, uh, they choose a mobile gaming startup, right? Um, but we don't even have to like just think of an hypothetical. I mean, think about how much money 
Andreessen Horowitz um, put into crypto, right? Um, which, you know, hit me up if you know a use case for it, for any of the things that they invested in. <laughs> Literally billions of dollars. <laughs> yeah. Tens of billions from of dollars. From that one fund. One fund, yeah, one fund. One fund, uh, their largest fund, I believe, was almost $10 billion. And then each subsequent one has been, you know, massive. Um around the same size. So the, these are people who put tens of billions of dollars into crypto, building the infrastructure for payments, building the infrastructure for asset generation, speculation, transactions, microtransactions, building markets, building out blockchains, building out a community that will self-perpetuate and also provide a lot of value for these people and that they coincidentally get in early enough in um, that they are able to get out with little to no risk to that initial capital investment, even in the midst of the bear market. I mean, they were still, they were still, uh, you know, in the green for their initial investments for a lot of their initial investments, even in the bear market is, is that money for crypto good, well served, or might it be used for other things? Like for example, cutting carbon commission, uh, emissions. Well, you might present this to, you know, crypto investor, crypto VC, and they say, well, um, why don't we split the baby? Why don't we invest in crypto um, carbon credits, right? And you know, we talked with Avi about uh, Avi Asher Shapiro about this. Um, that ends up being fraudulent, right? So it ends up it ends up taking away money from uh, from avenues and ventures that might be socially useful but are way too risky to rationalize within like this narrow, medium term, short term profit incentive structure. Um, and then because of that, you still might get savvy crypto investors or savvy venture capitalists who say, what if I figure out a shortcut to realize that potentially socially valuable innovation um, and, and create a shortcut, create you know a half-formed, half-baked idea or something that has a fraudulent asset like with crypto and proliferate it. And it ends up just wasting billions and billions and billions of dollars, right? So we're here and we're going to, you know, I guess walk through the, some of the, some of the problems in venture capital that guide people to this decision making, to this flawed decision making and, and think through some of the limitations that are inherent to venture capital, as well as limitations that venture capitalists have imposed on themselves that have, they've been rewarded for imposing on themselves or rewarded for refusing to challenge, right? Things like, you know, social capital and social networks and the relationship model um, of venture capital. As as well as, you know, sources of capital, as well as places where capital goes and stays and gets sticky, you know, or you know, uh, allocated to reliably. Um, and what, if anything, can be done about that individually, policy-wise, and, um, and, and that policy being related to how the venture capital markets work. But also, as part of, you know, as we've talked to, been talking more and more about, about like national planning. Um, planning of the economy, planning of our industrial policy, planning of our financial policy. How can federal or larger, higher level policy structures change the way that capital flows, specifically out of venture capitalists, um, uh, are distributed and allocated? And what sort of innovations might emerge? And then still also, what are the limitations of innovations? Because all of this is still within like a profit-centric system. And, you know, for us, it's not even really clear that that's the best system. This author admittedly is arguing at the end of the day that venture capital has immense potential to unlock innovation. Capitalist markets are the best way to do this. Venture capital is the best way to do this. We just need to um, tinker 
uh, with it a little bit. You know, we just need to, you know, clean the rust off the hinges. We just need to reorient things. We need to recenter and refine and rebalance and find our, you know, find our, our, our center chakra and then we'll, we'll be realigned with our purpose and mission statement. <laughs> uh, and, and I mean, we've talked about it before. Other people have talked about it before, but we do have central planning for technology and for innovation um, in this country and in, in the world, really. But those planners are venture capitalists largely, right? They're big private investors who do that central planning, who kind of set the parameters for what counts as innovation and what doesn't. The, the, the fixation on VCs is, uh, is not just our own. You know, it's not an idiosyncratic thing that, uh, uh, an axe that we are grinding at TMK. Um, and, you know, ultimately it doesn't matter, uh, in the grand scheme of things. You know, in reality, uh, and this, and this article by Peter Lee really lays out at the beginning that, like, you know, VC plays a central role in the U.S. innovation system, but also by extension, the world's innovation system. Venture capital and the model that we know of it today, and we'll kind of, and we'll, and we'll of course get more into detail what, how that actually works, what it looks like. But VC in this model is the, is the Silicon Valley model, right? And Silicon Valley is the, uh, is the Mecca. Of, of, of innovation, right? It's kind of held up as a model to be, uh, exported, um, a model to be emulated, uh, everywhere, right? In every, every institution, every country, every government, every state, every university, every corporation, every nonprofit, right? They all value innovation. Innovation's always a, a key pillar. Uh, and, and, but that what they always mean, or almost always what they mean is innovation in the model of Silicon Valley. And when they think about how to promote that innovation, they often think about it in terms of what are like, what's the culture of Silicon Valley. And inevitably that always comes down to uh, the you know, venture capital model and venture capitalist. VC has been extremely successful in terms of, uh, you know, their, their outputs, right? Like, you know, the, uh, the article points out that the domestic venture capital industry has helped fund companies that currently comprise 41% of the U.S.'s market capitalization, right? That's fucking massive. And I, I've seen other stats and figures talking about how, you know, the majority of the, uh, of the largest companies in the world um, and the vat and the supermajority of successful technology companies um, have venture capital at, you know, at their backing, right? Like venture capital was at some point and often in a very ongoing way pivotal to the uh, creation and the scaling and the success of these companies. But importantly, you know, that's the, that is not an argument to be like, aha, uh, capitalism is the greatest engine of innovation that, that human history has ever known. And the, and venture capital is the instrument of that in, uh, of, of capitalist innovation. I mean, that is true. The, the modifier here though is that capitalism is the greatest uh, engine of 
capitalist innovation that the, that uh, human history has ever known. Right? We don't we don't often talk about we don't often say that modifier when we're talking about innovation. It, it, it remains silent, but we have to we have to remind ourselves to say capitalist innovation, right? Because not all innovation is created equal. Not all innovation is the same. Um, and not all innovation is, uh, uh, for the same, for the, the, you know, for these like, you know, timeless purposes or anything like that, right? Like it's always innovation for what, by whom, why, how, and, and, and inevitably in the system we live in, those answers are capitalist, right? They are for capitalist ends, capitalist means, capitalist desires, et cetera. And that's what VC excels at doing, but they don't do it on their own. Of course, the reason why venture capital as well, in addition to being the kind of agents of technological capitalism, um, the, the reason why VC has been able to have such an outsized influence on, you know, uh, on, on the, the production of, startups and companies and the scaling and success of them and so on is because a lot of space has been made for VC. A lot of support is given to VC. Uh, Lee Minio points out in his article, quote, the U.S. government played a critical role in catalyzing the VC industry, and it has actively promoted its development for decades. We'll get into that because I think it's a it's a really interesting history of VC, which often goes untold. Um, it's unknown in a lot of ways, uh, and is but is absolutely crucial for understanding like where we are now is to understand that the venture capital model came out of the uh, capitalization and, and monetization, the profit extraction from uh, defense developments at, in the post-war era, right? So in other words, monetizing military technologies is where the where venture capital model of Silicon Valley originated. And from there, they have benefited from decades and decades of both direct and indirect support from the, the government in terms of tax breaks, in terms of subsidies, in terms of new rules and regulations that allow massive amounts of institutional investment to funnel into venture capital, um, into the, these VC funds. And it has been these the the space and support provided by in large part the the US government to say that you know in the classic sense of only the private sector can innovate only the private sector can pick winners and losers only the private sector um can can act in the in these private markets right and the role of the public sector is to uh make these markets secure them provide them with uh ongoing support and subsidies in various ways but in other words otherwise you know de-risking them all of that good stuff and then when it comes time to reap the benefits, reap the rewards, the praises, the adulations, uh, the, the government is nowhere, is nowhere to be seen. Instead, it's the VCs who step in and say, we bootstrapped this. We did this on our own, right? And, and it, it continues. It perpetuates this myth that VC is an engine of innovation, right? It, it perpetuates this idea, um, a disconnect, as as Lee calls it, quote, in which policymakers extol VC markets as broad engines of innovation without fully understanding their particular character and constraints. 
this is the mystification of venture capital that exists, right? Where like, you know, it's in our culture, but it's also in our policy that every, you know, everyone everywhere agrees. Venture capitalism is the engine of innovation. Silicon Valley is the engine of innovation. Uh, it's the only, uh, you know, locus point of innovation uh, in society. Um, and yet, while everyone everywhere seemingly agrees with that statement, no one anywhere uh, knows how this actually works, what its mechanics are, what its constraints are, and, and so on. And this is a really, that disconnect is uh, a, a particularly dangerous one, especially if we, if we, on a negative sense, have criticisms of the kinds of technologies that exist today, the kinds of things that they do in the world, the reasons why they do them, for whom they do them, and so on. And also particularly dangerous uh, if on a positive sense, we have alternative ideas and visions, desires and goals for what innovation should accomplish in society and how those, uh, those alternatives are constantly shut out they're smothered in the cradle they're not even allowed to be uh, uh you know a, a blossom of thought in our minds um because they are instead uh you know all, all the oxygen is sucked out by the the vc model and the mythology of innovation that surrounds, surrounds. it So we question this this mythos of the venture capital funds, right? And the next question is, okay, like, how does venture capital work? Because I think also, and this is a really valuable part of uh, the paper, most of the time when venture capital is discussed and coverage, and honestly by venture capitalists, um, most of the focus is around funding rounds, uh, connections to investors, uh, connections to entrepreneurs, evaluations. Um, and there is not actually a lot of discussion, say, from maybe in the business press when you're getting into the weeds of why a particular fund is the subject of a, of a story, uh, about like how they actually work, right? And so section one, where you know, the the premise or part one is where the premise is like, okay, we're going to look at how the government has actually helped order what is supposed to be a private entrepreneurial financial system, um, how the laws have structured it, right? How regulations have policies and policy makers have structured it and how they actually provide a huge amount of support for the venture capital industry and, and are responsible for in key part why the venture capital markets are so integral to the financing of startups or really to the financing of tech in our ecosystem, right? As the earlier aforementioned stat mentioned, right? but, you know, venture capital is in one way or another funded about, you know, f companies that are responsible for like 41% of this, com of this uh, you know, country's uh, market capitalization. That's, a, that's not an insignificant part. That's almost, you know, almost half, right? Almost half of market capitalization has, is connected to venture capital funding. So how does, how, what, you know, what are the actual mechanics of venture, venture capital, right? 
And so, and so here, Lee uses just the, the basic financing of a startup company to then scale up into questions about who the investors are, what they look like, where the money comes from, right? So we have a founder, we have founders, they're going to they're gonna make a company, usually with self-funding. Uh, they'll do this for the early stages of the, which they're developing their product or service. Then they'll try to attract additional capital to grow further, right? And there are a few ways you can do this. You can do internal financing, you can do external debt, but these are not available to an early stage uh, venture capital or venture you know, enterprise. And so, you know, Lee writes, internal financing, external debt, they're often unavailable because early stage ventures lack stable cash flows and tangible assets to use as collateral. Accordingly, many startups will turn to a first round of so-called seed round funding, right? So this financing provides convertible debt, maybe some other financial instrument that basically says, I'm giving you a bunch of capital, but it's actually a loan that we will convert into equity when you actually, when you go public, this gives me this amount of stake in the company. And this gives me the ability to also earmark valuation or to say that you have a certain valuation, right? I provide you 50 million for 5%. Uh, and that means you're worth a billion. So, so it allows you to give equity, get equity. It allows you to uh, quickly, you know, inflate the valuation, and it's a necessity because these places don't have enough revenue, assets, cash flows to to be able to go to other sources of finance uh, for capital uh, for capital operations or to grow their oper- grow their enterprise. As they keep growing, they pursue other fundraising grounds. This is where the Series A, the Series B, the Series C, D, E, F, G, all the way into the alphabet, and then maybe you can add numbers if you really really need that much fucking money, you know, like Uber, you know, if Uber had stayed private. Um, uh, but, you know, the, the venture capital uh, fund, uh, the venture capitalists continue to plow money into this. They also are not just plowing money out of the goodness of their hearts. They're using it to get equity in the company, right? And so more and more equity is offered. And the idea is that, you know, maybe this will increase the valuation as time goes on because revenue is improving, because cash flow is improving, because assets are more valuable, right? Because there's proof of growth and improved performance at scale. And so Lee writes, two important classes of early stage investors are angel investors and VCs. Angels are wealthy investors, wealthy individuals. And typically invest in early rounds and may conduct limited due diligence. Someone like uh, Jason Kalanakis, right? You know, he's an angel investor in a lot of you know startup funds, friend of the show. Um, we use Balaji Srinivasan is also oh, an angel investor. Yes. How can I forget our Lord and Savior, the herald of the future, the network statist himself? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <well. laughs> you know, and that book shows the limits of due diligence that oh, one can do. <laughs> we're going to talk about that book sometime. <laughs> At this rate, we might as well just call out everybody on the All In podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all they're all angels uh, who also have their own funds. I mean, Shamat uh, Shamat uh, had what like nine, twelve of uh, funds for the SPACs and his reverse Um So, angel investors. They do. I mean, it's. I want you to imagine this. You know, VCs already don't do much due diligence. Angel investors really don't have to do any due diligence, right? And then you know, Lee writes, VCs are more professionalized investors who invest assets on behalf of other parties. So VCs participate in several stages of financing, from seed round funding to later equity rounds. And this is also important, right? Because they're managing assets on behalf of other parties. Who are those other parties? Usually, they're institutional investors, right? You're getting pension funds. 
Yeah, multiple states, California, uh, New York, but also countries like Canada, they have pension funds that they're all they're going to, you know, go to a venture capital fund, provide them some capital, and this fund is supposed to manage it well, right? University endowments, foundations, you know, hordes of people's hereditary wealth put into some place. Um, these are the vast majority of the capital that venture capitalists get to play around with, right? Yeah, and then if you're particularly evil, though, you just bypass VCs altogether and you be the University of California uh, endowment and you invest $4.5 billion into the Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, cut giving, out the middleman. Cut out a, the middleman. Give me the blood money. you a seven percent <laughs> stake uh, in the Blackstone REIT uh, that is buying up, uh, you know, um, single-family homes and other uh, build-to-rent asset uh, housings uh, all over the world. But you know, that, that's that's for a different episode. That's for a different episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, UCLA and Blackstone working in Saudi Arabia, working together to build the future. Yeah, you see, Press, dumb move. You could have invested that four point five billion dollars into a uh, crypto fund four, um, and and got some uh, got some <laughs> apes. You could have got some in You could have got NFTs of homes. Uh, got a six thousand percent return and then a thirty thousand percent loss. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, somehow going below zero yeah. on your uh, investment. <laughs> only only you possible owe with them the power money. of VC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, somehow. And so and and you know, so so we've talked about this where we talked about okay, so startups they don't have the uh, they don't have the cash flow to to go to traditional financing places. They go to venture capitalists and angels. And venture capitalists are not sloshing around the money themselves they're managing it from even larger hordes of cash from like our friends at ucl uc system and so the vcs then with this fund it's being managed day-to-day by gp by general partner right and this is usually a firm that is you know a consisting of a bunch of investment professionals who are colloquially known as VCs. VC and 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 then to step back a little bit further, right? Then there are LPs, which are these limited partners, right? The people who are saying I have an asset, I have capital, you know, touch it. Do do what you want with it, right? Funds are also not immortal things. They last for usually uh, a few years. Um, you know, an example being um Shermott's a series of funds for uh, reverse mergers, but in general, they last you know anywhere from from you know, as, as, as much as five to ten years. After that, the GP, you know, the VCs, uh, they get rid of the fund and then they distribute the uh, the proceeds to LPs. Right, this is how much you earned on the return. We're going to take our cut. Right, we receive a nominal annual fee for managing your money, and then we also get a percentage of the profits that are uh, realized once we liquidate the fund at the end of its life cycle. And this, usually that's about 20%. Yeah. That the, which is steep. The, the, the VCs, you know, the general partners, the managers are, are getting 20% of the profits. So, I mean, if you play your cards right, you don't have to do shit. You can just invest it in some fucking ETF and you're, st- and you're, and you're pulling in uh, from doing nothing other than like maybe getting 3%. You're pulling in like what, like close to a percent? percentage point like about 0.6 so that's you know that's a good you do that a few times you're fine you're fine um so here we start to see some of the shape of some of the limitations and structures or incentives right 
because of this, VCs are constantly raising money, which means they're also, and because they're the reliable source of funding for startups, they're going to be reliably pursuing startups, right? They need to be raising money. They need to be soliciting money from these LPs, and they need to constantly find places to park it because they ha- eventually have to liquidate it, get their cut, and distribute proceeds and profits. That's that's the largely financial aspect of venture capitalists. But venture capitalists also perform a bunch of other functions, as, as Lee writes. Right? They identify investment opportunities, evaluate companies, negotiate investment terms, advise the management of portfolio companies, and liquidate investments. Right? And so they have a lot of control over, or they can have a lot of control over the companies that they are invested in, and they leverage this to help advise and realize. A certain decisions about whether the company's operations are going to go or how the, the company is going to pursue certain markets or how the company is going to offer certain goods and services. I mean, I think, you know, one of my favorite examples, of course, with this is with Uber, right? Where, you know, a lot of people um, read the uh, outsting of Tra- of you know, Travis Kalanick as um, a response to a really rancid culture at the company. But the investors didn't really give a single fuck about the culture uh, at the company, right? The work culture at the company, because that work culture was also connected to a cutthroat environment that allowed them to pursue growth globally, even when it didn't really make much financial sense. What they asked him for was because he was starting to dither on going public and taking the company public and helping them realize returns, right? That you is a problem for venture capitalists, especially when like they've been pouring in and poured in tens of billions of dollars into a company that they expected or thought would have a high valuation, but could only have that high valuation in a narrow window of time, specifically before the public realized how unprofitable it would always be. And before there was backlash to the culture that was intimately connected to its ability to lie to the public, convince the public that it could grow globally and scale up globally and eventually be profitable. It really is. It really is the the like the old like you know Charles Dickens like Victorian era uh, like you know gangs of, of of pickpockets and stuff, right? I'm thinking you know it's some mm-hmm. real like uh, uh, fucking Pinocchio type shit, right? Where it's like you know you you are putting on a big stage show. Right. Like you, you and your crew are putting on a big stage show. You're getting a big audience of people around, you know? Um, and while everyone's distracted by all the, the spectacle that you're doing in the street, right? The, 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 the singing and dancing and, and all kinds of crazy shit you're doing to keep people's attention. You got your friends pickpocketing everybody in the crowd. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you pick you you, you picking their. Po- that's where you're getting the real money. You're picking their pockets. You're stealing their watches, uh, and so on. And then, then what you got to do is you got to skip town before everybody knows what hit them. Right before they mm-hmm. realize, oh shit, those those street urchins picked all of our pockets. Right, Here you got to skip Mr. town. Scammer. That's right, and you got to go to the next town and you do the same thing. I keep moving. That's how venture capitalism works, right? You do right. a lot of song and dance to hype it up, tell people this is uh, you know, a valuable company. This company's worth $10 billion. This is the future. This is you know, going to disrupt everything. It's going to change everything, right? That's the song and dance. The pickpocketing comes in that small time window when either you go, you hit an IPO at the right time, so then you can 
then you've got a lot of uh, outside money coming in, right? That's when you can liquidate all those shares that you as a VC have gotten as part of your investment, liquidate that for returns or borrowing that. And this is increasingly more the case um, because IPOs have just, IPOs are, uh, IPOs are, are, are tough and the market for IPOs has fluctuated significantly in recent years. IPOs also require uh, due diligence uh, and, dis- <laughs> yeah. and, and disclosures. You read the S1. <laughs> And it's a cult manifesto, as was the case with WeWork. And then you say, oh, we're fucked. (laughs) And this was the innovation with SPACs was to get around the due diligence and the public disclosures necessary for an IPO by doing a pseudo IPO. But this is also why um, acquisitions... Uh, have uh, you know SPACs are just a merger, right? But it's a, it's a merger in the it's it's an IPO in the guise of a merger. But this is why acquisitions have been skyrocketing as well. Like more and more so, VCs push their portfolio companies to being acquired by an all like a like like a Google or Facebook or somebody, right? Like an already like big established industry player. And in fact, a lot of startups, uh, a lot of founders speak explicitly that their whole goal is acquisition, right? Um, and because this is also, this is the other main liquidation event uh, for for venture capitalists, as it's called. Um, you know, really, I think, highlighting how this is like a really short window of time where, uh, where you know, speculation can be uh, realized into like, you know, actual you know, material value in the, in the form of, you know, money in the bank, um, is these events, these liquidation events, um, and IPOs, uh, uh, you know, barring an IPO, it's acquisitions are, are the other one. But yeah, it's exactly how you describe it. Ed. It's like, there's a small window of time. You got to do the song and dance. You got to convince people that your snake oil is, is good. That's going to cure what ails you, um, that your crystal ball is accurate. Uh, and then you got to pick their pockets and then you got to skip town. That's how, yeah. that's how it works, right? That's the mechanics at, at play. And, and so that, that, you know, brings us to, okay, well, what is with all these mechanics, what is the strategy that venture capitalists are going to pursue? Right. And then, you know, they, they give a lot of fancy rule names to this power rule, uh, you know, uh, zero this, to this, one. The, yeah. Zero to one, all this bullshit. But really what it is, is just like, okay, we are going to throw money, you know, the lottery ticket model. But what we're going to do is we're just going to throw money in a lot of places. We expect that a few of them will be outsized returns, uh, and they will subsidize all the other losses, right? Um, in, in, in lease accounting, right, there's, for every 10 investments that a venture capitalist makes, one or two are, you know, successful, six grossly underperform, and two are complete write-offs, right? So that, so, th- so that's where it ends up being, right? Where it's like, you know that these people need your money. You also need to liquidate the you you need money from LPs and you need to liquidate it within a certain amount of time and the best ways to liquidate it are a sale or an IPO and so you're going to be throwing money at firms encouraging them to either IPO or get sold right and you're going to be pursuing business models products and services that are amenable to acquisition or to some sort of bloated valuation or to an IPO right and sometimes that may be something that is innovative, uh, but a lot of the times it's shit, and the results end up showing that that it ends up being shit. But 
you roll the dice and you hope that you know 10 to maybe 20% of your investments pay for themselves. This also then leads to, you know, you know, us trying to think about, okay, so what are some, you know, just scaling out of that strategy now that we have this, what also does that mean for these startups, right? He, you know, he, he points to scholarship by Professor Ronald Gilson that says that there's, a, you know, of course, there's a lot of significant technological and business uncertainty, right? There's market uncertainty. There's also the fact that founders know more than venture capitalists do investing, Sometimes because they don't really do due diligence, and sometimes because there may be some obfuscation, and sometimes because the venture capitalists aren't actually like you know well versed in that field. They're just like well enough to kind of get a sense of whether or not they should put money behind someone. But again, as we'll talk about later, that's really just that you know can also be just talked up to social capital and social networks that they rely on to make uh, decisions about stuff they don't have the expertise to actually weigh in on and, and correctly ascertain, right? And so, as Lee writes, numerous mechanisms, including stage finance, allocation of control elements, compensation forms, the role of exit, and implicit contracts, help mitigate moral hazard and information asymmetries. And in this manner, the legal and organizational framework for venture capital enjoys significant advantages in financing early stage technology startups compared to other sources of funding. Right. The idea here being that venture capitalists and these and these like you know floundering startups are good fit for one another, right? The startups need the capital uh, or else they won't be able to create their innovation and the, and the venture capital funds need to get their returns and they need to throw money at as many places as possible, right? But of course, there's still issues that emerge from here because they don't clear, they don't mitigate every moral hazard and the information symmetries are still present in a lot of really glaringly obvious ways that pop up. And sometimes the information symmetries, as he points out, doesn't even really matter because again, they don't really care. They're concerned with the returns. Yeah. Hyper profit at hyper scale um, and they're controlling the purse strings. So they also get to, as another scholar, Francesca Koyman has called it imprint you know, imprint their desires, their models, their values, all of that stuff on uh, the innovation that comes to them, on what they choose. Um, you want? I, I can. Uh, I can walk us through a little bit of the early history. I think yeah. Lee very helpfully lays out like the the history of VC and kind of a brief history from the the fifties onward, um, which I think provides a lot of really great contextualization that is often missing in our very like, you know, myopic, like short term, uh, kind of attention span of, of, uh, you know, the, uh, talking about these, these different organizations and institutions and just seeing that like, like the problems of venture capitalism, uh, exist for a reason, right? Like they are a product of the history that created the model. Um, it's not an accident that they work that and, 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 you know, uh, work the way that they do. And Lee lays out very clearly. Um, and this is something I want to dig a lot more into. I know some, I, I, I know some people who have done some great work on the history of VC and, you know, I think we'll we'll get them on the pod uh, to to talk about their 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 scholarship into this um, into this. But for a kind of really brief scene setting here, and then we can get on to 
uh, Lee's more empirical analysis of the actual like social practices of venture capital. Um, you know, the the modern, the first modern venture capital firms um, uh, came out of World War II. You know, they were they emerged as a way to commercialize uh, the technologies that arose that arose from the uh, absolutely massive amount of federal defense spending into military R&D during World War II. Um, you know, it was throughout the, the 50s and particularly the late 50s uh, that like these firms started emerging. They started pioneering these models that we've been talking about of, you know, combining investments with hands-on managerial advice for portfolio companies. So, you know, venture capitalists, of course, they're, they're active investors in the terms of, in the sense that they actively manage the uh the capital that is given to them by the you know the the limited partners the big often institutional investors pension funds etc who give them a lot of capital spend so they're active managers in that sense but they're also active in the sense that like they don't just they don't just then passively invest into startups they give startups a lot of mentorship a lot of advice on managing a business and so on. But this is also a way that they can exert control over the, um, over the, the operations of a business, over the mission of a business, uh, and so on, right? Making decisions about what is worth, what, what activities the business should be pursuing and which ones it should not and so on. Um, and so this model, I mean, has been the, the case from the very beginning since the late fifties, you know, VC funds, uh, because they were given the space and because they were given a lot of capital very early on, they were they found some very early successes in Silicon Valley. You know, Fairchild Semiconductor, Digital Equipment Corporation. These are very early, um, very foundational firms in Silicon Valley that all had uh, VC funding and and you know kind of benefited a lot from the momentum of the VC industry. Um, but also these are companies as if you, if you read uh, Malcolm Harris's Palo Alto, you know, these are companies that will be very familiar too in the terms of, you know, Fairchild Semiconductor, uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, right? These are companies coming directly out of uh, commercializing military technologies or commercializing uh, technologies created first for military applications with support from military funders and then going on to um, find, you know, wider um, market cases for them. And so VC was there from the, from the very beginning. You know, it was also this time period, the late 1950s and 1960s, that this model of the VC limited partnership arose, you know, a very powerful model um, and, you know, embodying what Lee calls a greater degree of private ordering um, than, you know, the attempt earlier in the, in the 19, in 1953, Congress created the small business administration. And through that, they tried to, you know, provide some small federal loans for, uh, for, for small businesses and so on. Um, but over time, 
you know, the, the government was never really interested in actually doing this in a serious way, right? And so, like, the small business investment corporations, as they were called, uh, you know, had, you know, poor performance, um, you know, bureaucratic morass, all of these things stood in the way of this program from uh, gaining influence as a financing vehicle for startups. And in its place, the federal government instead provided, made the space for and provided support for venture capital to step in and take over that role, right? And so here we have kind of private ordering of technology policy and investment decisions. And, and it was the, the, this model of the VC limited partnership was also obviously significantly shaped by these law, by laws and regulations, you know, and particularly what was really key here and what still remains a massive point of lobbying um, by the, uh, the the National Venture Capital Association, who we talked about a couple weeks ago. We were talking about their whining over the fact that like they, they, they have to start proving <laughs> that they've done some due diligence. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, these limited partners could have uh, a, a pathway to, to recourse. Sue. Yeah, standing to sue, exactly. Um, and and it, from the very beginning, uh, the uh, venture capital has always benefited from and has always lobbied for uh, advantageous tax law. And so, like, you know, Lee lays out that, quote, for example, federal tax law helps structure this new model of entrepreneurial finance because VC funds are partnerships Capital gains flow directly to investors without being taxed. You know, furthermore, if, if investors are tax exempt, such as nonprofit pension funds or foundations, they do not pay any taxes at all. Uh, and so thus the, the VC limited partnership represented an attractive vehicle for a broad class of institutional investors. So the reason VC exists is largely due to tax advantages, right? Um, a reason why these big institutional investors uh, in, you know, funnel so much money into VC is because they're partnerships which don't pay capital gains taxes. Which right? I get like, people to ask, like, did we, did we create, did we happen to create the most positive and most efficient way to discover new ideas and innovate? No. <laughs> no. No, what we did or, or is... Or did we create we, a, a tax advantage system? Yeah, we, we created a really great tax advantage system. Uh, and, and as a result, these people crow on and on about the role that they play in society and driving it forward. It's really in the, the role they play in, po in helping everybody keep you know the uh, the party going and pocketing a lot of the money and, ha and sometimes happening to allocate funds to firms, but in ways that the state could have actually done itself, right? Or public, more, you know, bottom-up institutions have done themselves, could have done themselves if they had the capital to do so, you know? Mm. So I think this also helps explain some of the some of the fanatic fervor you'll get from VCs about this. Because as a class, they understand, you know, what what's at stake here, right? There's a lot of money. There's a lot of money that's tax-exempt. That's right. It is insane how much tax law uh, shapes society. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like it is truly insane. Like, uh, Lee lay, further lays out, um, 
quote, federal tax law benefited the VC industry in other ways as well. Seeking to push for more favorable legislation, VC industry representatives launched the National Venture Capital Association in 1973. An important legislative priority for the NVCA has been lowering tax rates. While nonprofit LPs are tax exempt, individual VCs themselves and VC backed companies are sensitive to tax rates. The, in, the National Venture Capital Association successfully lobbied for cuts to capital gains tax rate in 1978. This and another tax cut in 1981 helped bolster the VC industry. In 1981, the incentive stock option law shifted the time at which capital gains are taxed in a way that further benefited stock option compensation. So here we see very, like very early in the late 70s and early 80s, some major changes happened in the tax laws uh, that that directly benefited VCs, directly benefited stock option compensation um, as a as a model. And thus directly led to noticeable and causally uh, you know, following uh, expansions in venture capital, right? So it's like, like, yeah, did we did we create uh, a system um, of, of, of masters of the universe who hold the divining rod of innovations, who are themselves merely vessels for the primal forces of capital uh, in such a way that, uh, that nobody can understand, nobody can harness, nobody can control. You can only sit back and enjoy the ride and enjoy the benefits. Did we create a a, 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 a a sacred priesthood of innovation or or did we make some changes to tax law that directly benefited uh, already wealthy investors who then decided that they were going to get more wealthy uh, by by doing uh, more investing? Uh, did, or, and and, and uh, you know, well, I don't know. I, uh, who's, it's a land of contrast. Uh, who's to say if it's the first <laughs> option that these are uh, vessels of the primal forces of innovation um, or? If they are uh, the direct benefactors of uh, lobbying for tax cuts uh, and tax law advantage uh, for wealthy people, who Damn, knows? What a coincidence! When you give me a lot of money, the world is a better place. <laughs> I, I, I think we, I think we stumbled onto something here, guys. <laughs> oh man! So like, it's it's like this is really the history of VC, right? And and you know, moreover. It, this is, it's all happening in this like three year period between like 1978 and 1981, basically. Um, because in, in, uh, uh, 1979, the Department of Labor clarified their quote unquote prudent man rule, um, under the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. Um, and the prudent man rule, uh, as it's called is essentially a, a kind of rule of thumb for investors, especially like pension fund, um, managers who have to, you know, they're only allowed to make the investments that a quote unquote prudent man would make, you know, you know, <laughs> sick with man. But like the idea is that like, is it a, is this an investment that like a rational a rational reasonable and prudent professional would make um 
you know, are they are they being prudent stewards of other people's pension funds or insurance premiums or whatever? Um, but they made a they made a clarification to this rule uh, that uh, that allow, in 1979, which allowed private pension fund managers to invest in risky asset classes such as venture capital. This one regulatory rule change, not even really a change, a clarification, which I should, which we should say the National Venture Capital Association lobbied very hard and directly for. Um, this one regulatory clarification on a rule led to a massive increase in capital for VC markets. Lee lays it out. In 1978, the year before the quote-unquote prudent man change, pension funds accounted for $481 billion, uh, million, dollars, which is 15% of VC investments. In 1986, so about five, six years after the rule change, allowing for institutional cha- you know, changes to happen and so on, this goes from... from 481 million and 15% of VC investments jumping up to 4.8 billion dollars and more than half of all VC investments coming from pension funds. Man, there is nothing in my life that I could just clarify and cause suddenly uh 4.5 billion dollars of capital movement to happen. <laughs> <laughs> This is insane. It's insane the the when you like dig into the history here, what is the venture capital industry built on? It's built on tax law advantages and uh loosening of regulatory rules um allowing for pension funds to invest in risky asset classes. That's the entire basis of the now dominant model of innovation planning and private ordering of technology policy and funding uh, in society today. It's great. It's good. It's it's it, it's such a strong um, basis to build uh, the the engine of progress on top of. You know, it's just a bunch of dudes trying to figure out the best way to build the next the next phase of tech. Right, I think it, I think we're being a little too harsh about the the coincidence of uh, tax advantages and the removal of prudent and sane and rational investing limitations that spurred a wave of um, of handing assets and funds over to venture capitalists. I mean, I think there was a need, and the investors fit it. You know, isn't that what capitalism is all about? As I said before, though, I mean, VC is an unprecedented engine for a capitalist innovation uh, in human history, right? No, no, nothing has ever contributed to such rapid speed and scaling of capitalist innovation. And we are all reaping 
uh, reaping the the uh, the harms and the risk, <laughs> yeah. and, and the yeah. and the uh, giving the most annoying and goddamn stupid people alive uh, the the platform uh, to feel hubristic uh, and godlike in their proclamations. I would do anything to read what Marx would say in response to like a Mark Andreessen post or, uh, <laughs> you know, to like, it's time to build, you know, that would, uh, I would love that. I mean, he really, he already has whole books and essays that respond to that sort of stupid vacuous sentiment, but I would love a very specific one, a really catty, petty, uh, and, and, and incredibly, uh, uh vicious and aggressive one. <laughs> Man, we would have never like Marx was already extremely distracted by all his petty beefs uh, <laughs> in the you know in the 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 the, the mid eighteen hundreds. Uh, if 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 he were how many Marx how many Marxes uh, exist today um, and and yet are too distracted uh, by posting to write their their magnum opuses of political economy. How many? How many? We don't know. We'll never know. <laughs> it's, it's like, how, you know, how many geniuses uh, exist outside of the imperial core but are never given the support needed um, to realize their genius? Um, how many Marxes uh, exist yeah. but are never given the uh, the attention the 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 Adderall needed to realize yeah. their, their genius? The nudge. <laughs> How many reply guys would die for you if you acknowledged them? <laughs> how many mark how many how many potential Marxes exist in the comments of Jacobin uh, uh, yeah. arg- you know, arguing sectarian nonsense? <laughs> and so this brings us to you know, as we've been talking about, you know, venture capital, one quick trick helped it. A few quick tricks helped it escalate itself into a force for capitalist innovation. Whether that's good or bad, um, you know, you probably can guess what our thoughts are on this. But this is, you know, this has now gotten us to a point where it's like, okay, well, venture capital is a feature of the economy. What are the what are like regulators and federal policymakers going to do about this? Right? Of course, they're going to be continuing to protect because of the lobbying protect these tax advantages of course they're going to preserve uh because of lobbying also the changes to pension funds and management and of course those two things are going to grow right but also there have been you know other spurts of of growth in vc activity ongoing and separate changes to tax law right reducing capital gains tax as well as expanding the already massive loopholes have spurred more venture capital activity and federal uh, government has also embarked on policy programs to try to help further subsidize oh investments that might be riskier than those that typical startups would be interested in making by offering tax loss carry forwards. And so Lee, you know, talks about here the adoption and expansion of the qualified small business stock exemption uh, to the uh, capital gains tax. And this gave a massive 
tax subsidy, you know, for some of the reasons that we talked about earlier before, because there's, there ends up being a prioritization and, and, the, and the tax advantage, advantage to the, to the way in which some of these startups offer stock based, stock based compensation or do equity financing. There have also been programs like, uh, Obama's startup America, which had $2 billion in which it matched with federal V uh, of, of federal funds that it matched with VCs. There was the Jobs Act, the Jumpstart Our Business Startups, which uh, weirdly did you know crowdfunding, but it was also an attempt to kind of clear uh, barriers to IPO, which, as you know, is one of these, is the golden exit, it's golden parachute for uh, venture capitalists, um, and the best way to earn returns, distribute proceeds, get a fat cut, the nice juicy cut of that profit, and. Of course, venture capitalists have these. These a lot of these things have happened independent, but venture capitalists have also been lobbying for each at each step of the way. Um, our friend, you know, Amy Klobuchar, which is also this is an interesting little tidbit because Amy Klobuchar has kind of emerged as an antitrust figure, but you know, in um, in, in, relative, in recent memory, right, is was leading a group of senators, Lee writes, um, to introduce this thing called the New Business Preservation Act, which was going to allocate. Um, $2 billion to aid startup investments in undercapitalized regions, right? And this is from 2020. So there have been a lot of moves that the federal government has also done to kind of say, all right, well, we're going to accommodate the already made the exemptions and advantages preserved. Going to preserve them. Uh, we're also going to offer up more money to try to maybe incentivize or ease um, the ways in which startups and venture capitalists can meet each other. But there's also, and this is really, you know, one of the this is one of the money shots is R and D, right? R and D is massively subsidized of by the federal government, and as a result, by um, ends up you know supporting venture capital efforts because a lot of these firms that the federal government is supporting the R and D for are venture capital backed, right? As of 2013, Lee writes, the federal government provided 130 to 140 billion dollars a year in research and development funding. Furthermore, the government offers R&D tax incentives collectively worth several billion dollars. Technology transfer laws such as the Bob-Doyle Act, which allows recipients of federal funds to take title to taxpayer-funded patents, also promote entrepreneurial activity and more generally, strong protection and enforcement of intellectual property rights has been shown in some contexts to promote uh, entrepreneurship, right? So you have the Small Business Innovation Research Program, SBIR, and this you, uh, gives public funds to help the startups uh, that might not be able to attract capital from venture capitalists. Uh, Biden has also said that he's interested in in, in playing around in this field uh, by trying to attract immigration of high skill workers, right? People who would be tech workers, people who would work and start at uh, start startups and work at them. And this is also something that the venture capitalist industry has been trying to push for. Uh, so NVCA is constantly lobbying for things that allow it to uh, get more greater access to federal funding, uh, to reform capital markets, to ease restrictions, especially on due diligence, as we talked about them whining, uh, on uh, the, the obstacles to IPO. And if there are obstacles to IPO, the ability to circumvent them with other sort of exit strategies. And the ability to attract workers um, that will start more startups, attract more funding, generate those outsized returns that they're interested in, and help justify the party for continuing, you know, continuing to go on. Right. 
and, 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 and importantly, work longer hours, hustle harder for less pay yes. uh, and lower expectations. That's also a very, yeah, that, yeah, that's good that you pointed out. That is also a very important aspect of this, right? Is that high-skilled workers in other countries come here and similar to how offshoring is done in a way that undercuts wages, you can also undercut wages by bringing in these workers, right? And offering them far less money because labor conditions are even worse in some of the other places that they're coming from. And, 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 their, and their visas and their families' visas are yes. directly tied to your largesse as their feudal lord. Yes, yes. You know, so all of this shaping a picture of incentives in venture capital, limits in, in venture capital, which kind of encourage people to play fast and loose, reward them for playing fast and loose, um, create a lot of dependencies that make it hard to undermine, challenge, decohere, or destabilize core parts of this logic because of how much money is, is circulating at the middle of it, right? And because at this point, Doing basic things like the prudent man law, getting rid of these tax loopholes, uh, figuring out ways to impose sharper limits on due diligence and less exits to IPO would just be be gunshots uh, to to the body of this industry. Maybe not quite the heart, but to the body of the industry at the very least, right? Because of how much support it gets through these victories that it's won, essentially, and also through its structural model that it's landed on and chosen to push as the final form of capitalist innovation. Yeah, so I mean, for all these reasons, right, the venture capital model has completely uh, embedded, uh, ensconced itself into the you know being synonymous with national innovation policy in the US and and so goes the US uh many many other places follow right uh you know um and, and that that's that's the benefit of being a hegemon um you can really you know through tax laws uh and 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 regulatory rules create an entire industry that then goes on to uh uh shape uh and lead the uh, the global uh, innovation system. Venture capital now is basically given the reins, right? Like they are the they are the the only way to advance innovation. At least that's the kind of mythology that is built up around them. And you know, uh, there's a whole host of policymakers and think tankers and uh, you know, academic economists and all these other people who exist to perpetuate uh, and expand. This mythology of uh, of the VC model of innovation, and through that as well, um, the 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 government has largely, as we've talked about, you know, stepped stepped aside uh, in terms of leading or steering or guiding this. Right, leaving leaving that instead, leaving those decisions to the private market to private ordering. Um, but if we look at like where you know, funding and investment comes from um, in the private markets for uh, R&D, for research and development. Uh, It's also extremely concentrated, right? So Lee points out that VC-backed companies such as Apple, Google, Intel, and Microsoft uh, account for 44% of total R&D spending by U.S. public companies, right? Now, they are... So if we allow them to, you know, these big private, these big public companies, these big, uh, uh, you know, corporations to make decisions about R&D funding, again, it goes back to what we were talking about at the top of the show. Like, are they doing things because it's like socially beneficial? 
because it's you know publicly beneficial uh, or, or any of uh, you know any of these kind of you know pro-social values uh, that that we have, or are they doing things because it uh, aligns with you know creating capitalist innovation for capitalist interest uh, that are beholden to capitalist imperatives, right? Like it, it, it's it's easy to see uh, where. Where where the money goes, what kind of what innovations are prioritized over other models or or, or modifiers of innovation, right? Um, and we can see as well, you know, going back to the role, the the central role that venture capital has been given to play in all of this. As Lee points out, as of 2020, VC finding, uh, financing has helped produce 925 public companies, which comprise 26% of all public companies and 41% of total market capitalization. And importantly, this is only focusing on VC-backed companies that have gone public, that have hit the IPO. Uh, that analysis that Lee is is pulling from uh, does not account for uh, all of the acquisitions or the companies that have remained private, right? And so that number is actually much more, inf- uh, much larger in real terms, right? Showing just how central the VC model has uh, has become to you know. Corporate financing and technology investment and development and and you know in in the system, uh, it, we can't underestimate the importance of the VC model. Um, and, and and you know it's a it's a terrible model, highly constrained and restricted model for many reasons. And Lee goes through and enumerates a lot of these. Uh, a lot of these constraints that happen in terms of the everyday social practices of um, in that VCs actually, you know, enact in their investment decisions, who, you know, who, who they give money to, what kinds of trends and, and hype cycles they contribute to, um, what they value in terms of being, you know, as innovation or progress and what they disvalue or discount as innovation and progress. Um, this is, you know, the, the way that VC markets embody this kind of private ordering of the innovation system uh, is a meaningful, you know, in a very meaningful sense, uh, as Lee points out, a product of deliberate public policy, right? It's all of these federal laws, these regulations, these policies um, that have supported the creation of the modern VC system as, the, uh, as a center point of entrepreneurial finance, of, of innovation development. I think, you know, we can start getting into uh, all of the, the Lee's very, very detailed uh, and great synthetic analysis of the various limitations and constraints that the VC model has um, in terms of the, the, the you know, the, these kind of hurting effects uh, the way the in, in terms of you know the the kind of biases uh, you know social capital right like all of these things right the social connections that play an outsized role in connecting startups with VCs it really is about your network who you know where you came from I remember seeing something on Twitter uh, you know take take this for what it is but I think it's a really nice. Uh, representation of a lot of stuff that we're going to get into here where somebody had created uh, a LinkedIn profile using a 
It was one of those like AI generated like you know profile pictures of just like a hype like a generic white guy in his like mid twenties, right? Crazy ass white boy. That's right. Worked at worked at some name some uh, household name venture capital funds. This guy created a fake LinkedIn profile of a founder. So it was an AI generated white male face, um, and the <laughs> the LinkedIn profile in its about page only said. 2x founder, period, polymath, period, coder, period, entrepreneur, period. And then the uh, experience was uh, building something new, stealth startup uh, for the last month. And then previous to that was strategy and ops, Stripe. For a year, a, a year and ten months, and then and then the education was uh, dropped out of Stanford um, and in Y Combinator. So that's all. It's like the it's like the most bare bones, plain, generic LinkedIn profile that you can imagine. Within twenty four hours. Uh, a venture capitalist had reached out with a direct message <laughs> asking about investing in whatever the uh, startup was that this guy um, had. And the, the, the name of the guy was even uh, Chad Smith. <laughs> Chad Smith. That beautiful. And, it's, it's, and the VC analyst who reached out, you know, the guy had a screenshot of the direct message and it was also just bullshit. It just says... Hey, Chad, I'm an analyst for and then redacted ventures and saw you were starting your founder journey. A few ex-Stripe buddies of mine had great things to say about you. And I'd love to connect to learn more about what you're building and share more about our fund. What a, that's a lie. He didn't yeah. talk to any of uh, <laughs> Stripe buddies. Otherwise, they'd be like, I don't know who this fucking dude is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> No due diligence, just a lie. Uh, and, and it also just like, it's a perfect encapsulation of a lot of the stuff that, that uh, Lee gets into in the article, as we'll discuss around like, it's all about these social, it's all about social connections. It's all about social signaling, right? By like having, you know, uh, you know, Stanford dropout, going through Y Combinator, uh, a Stripe alum. Like this is why this v- a VC was able to find this LinkedIn profile within 24 hours of its creation because all they do is sit there uh, and do keyword searches for that shit, right? And then reach out and be like, you're the kind of person I want to invest a uh, $100 million into. Um, and so it's that, right? It's the... Uh, uh, it's it's the fact that you know a, a lot of VC investments are actually not very venturesome, uh, mm-hmm. as Lee puts mm-hmm. it. Right? They are they are very risk averse, um, uh, and they you know they follow these herding effects in terms of what hot technologies are, the trends, the hypes. They just follow the leaders, um, and and that uh, all of this while also aiming for these big quick hits, hyperscaling. You know the golden exit within five to seven years, ideally. Uh, and so, obviously, all of these are going to be like massive constraints, massive limitations in terms of what gets funding, what counts as innovation, what counts as progress, what gets passed over, who gets passed over, all of that stuff. So that's what's to come. We are at time right now. This is always the case with these big juicy law articles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they got to be double headers if we're going to mm-hmm. actually do justice to their uh, to their analysis. And this is uh, no exception. So I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap us up there, boys. 
uh, I've just laid out everything that's to come as we dig deeper into um, these limitations and their consequences. Um, uh, you know, the everyday social practices of VC mo- of the VC model of venture capitalist. You can find that. The second part of this episode of this analysis at patreon.com slash this machine kills um, for additional premium episodes every single week. So we'll catch you over there for part two of our analysis of uh, Peter Lee's amazing article on uh, venture capital. So uh, until next time, later. Adios. Adios.